So I think a lot of people think they're immortal. You know, if, if I was to tell you, you could have a scan today and you find out you've got a brain tumor, would you want to know? Or would you rather live for another 10 years and not know? David Smith, MBE. He got this accolade through his sporting achievements, but sadly, in 2010, he was diagnosed with a tumor cancer. The operation left him partly paralyzed, so we quite naturally talk about living with the tumor as well as living life to the fullest. Be happy, never content, and make sure you're subscribing. Before we start this week's podcast, I have to give a special mention to our sponsors. I Secure Vehicles. They are a brilliant company, a family-run business, and they specialize in vehicle safety and security throughout the UK. I know this company very well, and I also know the people behind the brand. If you've been following me on my podcast journey and on social media, you will know that I love cars and so does my network. This is why I'm very, very excited to be working with iSecure Vehicles, and this is why we have chosen them to be our sponsors for the Stephen Sully Study Podcast. Their team are professionals, experts, and they're efficient. Once their product is installed on your car, your vehicles, you will have the peace of mind that your asset is protected. Trust me, do not wait until it's too late. Get protection now. For more information about their products, including dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and also car tracking systems, head over to isecure-vehicles.co.uk. And remember to mention the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you. Right, welcome back to the podcast, Stephen Sully Study. We are here in Mayfair, Woodbury House Art Gallery. I've got an incredible man in front of me, Mr. David Smith. Let me correct that. David Smith, MBE. My first question before we talk about your tour around the street art exhibition and coming to Woodbury House for the first time, and also that fantastic story you told me about a street artist called Stoney. How did you get the MBE? It was for services to sport, but to be honest with you, and I'm not undermining it by any stretch of imagination, I never, I never did it. I never did sport for that. I never dreamt that I'd ever be getting an MBE or anything like that sort of stuff. The, the number one thing I value in life is relationships. It's people, you know, being with people, being with good people. So, and these things are, they're, they're superficial, sometimes a little bit of noise. The, and the people are always like, oh, what was it like to go there and everything? You know, it's, it's okay, but it, it can never replace the time I've spent with my mates over the years. They're, they're, they're the quality memories. And I think that, you know, when it's all said and done and you're at the end of your life, you, you only have your memories and memories are built from experiences and you can only truly get an experience if you savor the moment. So that's being present, being where your feet are, being in the moment and being with somebody. And then when, sometimes when you go to those things, everything's so abnormal that you don't really fully take it in and it's all happening really quickly and it's not until you kind of leave Buckingham Palace, you're sat on a tube with a, you know, a bunch of sweaty people and then you're sat at your, uh, in a hotel room on your own and you're thinking, ah oh, man, I'd, I'd kill right now just to be back skiing some lines with my mates. They, they were, that was more precious. So yeah, it was, it was for services for sport, but I think that you know sport gave me way more than I ever have ever dreamt of uh, and yeah okay it's I guess to have those letters maybe it gets you into 
someone might open a letter from you or whatever but it really it doesn't mean anything to me to more because i think of what i've dealt with in an existential fashion throughout my life and mortality and i've seen things that are just so so much bigger and i think that we have to learn a lot in society to be happier with less and not more. I think we constantly chase more and more medals, more titles, more of this, and it's going to make us happy. And we realize that none of this stuff actually truly makes us happy. Actually chipping away, as Michelangelo did with the great sculpture, mm. actually chipping away and getting rid of things is actually more fulfilling and more happy, and especially as you get later on in your life to stop chasing and trying to find these things. So yeah, it was, it was a great day. Did it make me any happier? Probably not. <laughs> Does it make me happy now? Not really. Um, but it was, yeah, it was for services for sport. The, the irony and the funny thing is at the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask you one question and I feel it's going to link right to the beginning of this podcast. I won't reveal too much, but you'll probably understand what I mean when I, yeah. when I ask you the final question. In life, I think the, the medals that we have are things like the amount of money that you might make from your craft, your profession, your business, your brand, uh, the, the actual the actual medals that you receive from sport, or maybe the the titles and the accolades, etc. These are these are these are things that you, you achieve during your life. But I think the ultimate way of becoming fulfilled, I guess, is is being in the moment. It's definitely something that I've struggled with, and even even still today, I think when you live in London, modern day of the world of social media and running a business etc and having a family is quite hard um walking through the gallery for the first time i don't want this to be a plug but i kind of do want it to be a plug so coming to woodbury house for the first time the building the artworks and what you saw what was just your first initial impression david so i'll be honest i didn't know where i was going and i stepped in and i was like whoa and it triggered a lot and triggered i'm not gonna lie so I, I have a, I don't know massive amounts about art, but I have a great appreciation for the, for the human being, for the, the mind and the person that's behind the art. I find that almost more fascinating to understand the human that's created a masterpiece that's now hanging on a wall. And, so, and, I, and I like to understand the, the psychology and the philosophy behind the human who, who has done this. And the reason I say it, it, it's triggered a lot and it kind of hit me and stopped me in my feet was that on the first day of radiotherapy in 2019, I sat down next to, to a very charismatic character in the, in the UCLH, just below Tottenham Court Road. And we sort of introduced ourselves, I'm David, and he's like, oh, Antonio. And, and he's like, hi, what do you do? And we got chatting away, the normal sort of conversation. And he was a street artist. And we, for some reason, from whatever you believe in, all of our radiotherapy sessions for six and a half weeks were at the same time on the same day. Now, wow. bear in mind that radiotherapy starts at eight in the morning, runs to probably eight at night, and there's hundreds of people getting it. Whoever designed our program, we ended up together. But that's not the first coincidence. The bigger coincidence was is that Stoney, so he'd been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Five years before his diagnosis, he had woke up one night and decided to produce an abstract piece of work. And when I say this abstract piece of work looked like me, it was literally a self-portrait of me. And bearing in mind, he had never even, he didn't even know, we'd never met, he'd never seen me, he'd never heard of me. He woke up one night 
And rather than painting this piece in his gallery, he actually painted it in his living room, which he never normally did. So he painted a St. Andrew's cross, Scottish flag on my head, which again, he, he's from Italy. He didn't, he didn't know it was a Scottish flag. He had a lot of philosophies up there, you know, don't strive to make an income, strive to make an impact. It's something I've always wanted to, you know, I don't chase money. I, I'd rather have a more of a purposeful impact on humanity. Uh, there was a lot of other quotes but the thing that really got me was exactly where my tumor is and my spinal cord injury. He had drawn a hashed line in an arrow with the big words in red, poison, pointing directly to where my tumor was. And for me, that, that, that blew me away and challenged me on so many levels, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, everything. It flung my hole because I'm dealing with the potential of my death and here I am looking at this piece of art hanging in his gallery which they gave me as, as, a, as a birthday present and it now hangs on my wall and Stoney died last year and I this and this was a big importance of time because we can make money lose money but we can't do anything with time 18,400 seconds in a day. How we spend those seconds, we can't get them back. And it's so important. And ever since we had our radiotherapy together, I kept saying to Tony, hey, you need to come to Jamaica. You need to come to Kingston because I knew he would love the culture. The culture is rich for street art, for music. Everything around Jamaica is... is Stoney loved it. And he, and he loved Bob Marley and he loved all of that sort of music. So you've got to come. And he said, yeah, we'll get it sorted. We'll get it sorted. You know what? We never got it sorted. And then one day my phone went and it was Stoney. And I read the message and actually it was his partner who messaged me to say, look, I'm sorry to tell you, David Stoney passed away this morning. And it broke my heart because I thought, shit, I said I was going to do it. And never got around right it. And that's the problem with bucket lists as well. We make all these, oh, I'll do this. I'm going Because we think we were going to live forever. We think we're immortal. And we're really not. I remember being 20, blink of an eye, I'm 40. If I make it to 80 and I'm blessed, it'll be, it'll go so quickly. So when I stepped in here today and looked at all the art, I, I seen so much hurt, pain, creativity, just so, so many things. But it also took me back to that experience in radiotherapy with, with Stoney. And also thinking about, you know, I, I almost feel like He's never truly died because his work's still here, his work still hangs, it's on the streets. People talk about him, even the fact we're talking about him today. And this is what I think is great about art. And what's even more kind of spooky eerie is he made a piece of art for somebody that purchased it, but never came to, to pick it to up. To pick it up. So someone bought that and they never showed up. That's bizarre. It's really bizarre, right? Yeah. It's really bizarre. And we, we told the story in radiotherapy to the doctors and some of them got it and then other people didn't. And I think to fully, for that story to fully absorb into your cells, into every part of you as a human being, I think you have to have a level of self-awareness, a level of metacognition. You have to have a connection to mortality and you have to understand that around, I guess, around your own death. And then you'll probably connect to that story. If that story and you're kind of going, oh, that doesn't make any sense to me. 
you're probably just not quite there on your own journey yet of, of self-awareness, self-discovery. And that, you know, usually comes with wisdom. Arthur Brooks talks about fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And when you get to, four, you know, in your early years, you're all go, 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 sort of a Mark Zuckerberg type intelligence. And then in your later years, you're more of a Dalai Lama and you give back to you the lessons you've learned through life. You give back as a, as a mentor to mentees. and. And I think that, um, you know, if, you, if you're in that part of your life, then that story might resonate a bit more with you and you might be like, wow, okay, that's kind of spooky. Mm. Bearing in mind that this, this guy had never seen me. And when I look at this painting every morning, it's like looking in the mirror. Uh, so it's a constant reminder. Well, it's a constant reminder that I have a spinal cord injury and I have a tumor, which is not always the greatest remem remember, but what it does is it, it reminds me to live life. And it's almost... What's even more spooky, I, I went to a cancer research dinner in Edinburgh this year to do a talk. And the, the guy who'd organized the talk gave me a gift. And he gave me a little, uh, the, the t sand timers, I can't remember what they're called. The, the, the sand drops down through them, the hourglass sort of figure. And he said, look, this is from, I could trace this back to an antique shop in Belgium. It, it, was, an, it was from 1920, a fisherman had it. And he put Stoney's name engraved on it. And on our side, he put time is precious. And he gave it to me. He says, open that when you get home tonight. And I sit with this timer. And I, I, every morning I would put it on as I was having my coffee. And by the time the sand had run out, I had to be out the door and on my bike and living. Because it was just a reminder of time is so, so crucial. And I realized that the sand in the top is the future. The sand in the bottom is the past. All we have is that grain of sand that's dropping. And if you try and catch it, it's gone. So the present almost doesn't even exist because it's so it's so fleeting, right? It's so quickly and then we're pulled out of the present constantly with our own mind. We're either worrying about the past, we're anxiety about the future, phones are pulling us out of, out of the present moment. We struggle to truly be where our feet are. This little thing reminded me and I'm thinking, wow, man. And I only met Stoney for the radiotherapy stuff. I'm thinking this guy is like on my shoulder and he's there telling me, you have to live your life. And it's a, a reminder to me where I think that I might not have a long life with my tumor, but I would rather live every day and die at 50 than live to a hundred and never live a day. And I think when I sit in this room and there's all this paintings around me, it's almost like I can almost feel Stoney's presence, which is, <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a bizarre feeling. So coming in has been quite a, it's going to take, I'm going to have to journal and reflect on, the, on it tonight because it's quite, I'm in a, a very interesting period in my life right now with tumors and stuff and mortality. And so I, I've got this like heightened awareness of just this, beautiful thing that life that is life and i think that it would be so great as a as a human race if we learn to appreciate less and just the simple things yeah. rather than wanting more like I, I need to buy this ferrari or porsche i need to have the latest of this you know the most beautiful thing i've seen recently was a bird just landing on the tree in front of me no um I'm a big believer of law of attraction and I feel that the law of attraction has been slightly diluted over time because it's kind of misused or people don't really 
understand it or they say it because it sounds cool and mm. it's not something that they kind of really embody it's just a saying now and that's what happens happens with social media right a cool strong saying can suddenly be become diluted and lose all its power because it's just thrown around everywhere and i gave you a very very small story about us coming into this gallery space we represent richard hamilton godfather street art then we got connected to black the rat and both these guys influenced Banksy and this was kind of in a way Banksy's former gallery because his gallerist guy called Steve Bladeridis used to occupy this building and then you came through the door and told me about the the artist Stoney um, which is all, all kind of connected which is yeah. quite quite bizarre and I do believe in certain energies will attract to certain other energies whether that's in human form or whatever uh, because it, you just kind of resonate with each other mm. so I do believe that these conversations were meant to happen and they're happening right now and 100%. something good is going to manifest off yeah. the back end of it 100% talking about you a bit more though right you're a Nike athlete okay now I kind of know judging your you know the way you talk about yourself in such a humbling way being MBE but also being a Nike athlete is kind of the same it's probably the same thing to you but it's still a great achievement you know black belt karate um, Paralympian gold medalist 2012 for rowing and then obviously uh, cyclist in 2015 I do believe if I got this written down right uh, which is the cycling road world cup yeah but during this time as well, which I know we're going to get onto, you've been battling um, tumor, cancer, and it's almost like it doesn't matter how many times this thing hits you, you're the epitome of the Rocky saying, which is doesn't matter how many times you get hit, it matters about how hard you hit, it matters about how you get up or, or whatever mm -hmm. the saying is. Um, I don't want to obviously skip over all your achievements and just go on to that, but like how the hell have you come back time and time again and how have you beat cancer many many times so it's it's i think it's quite poignant that you're that you're a boxer right and we we spoke about this uh combat sports was is a big big part of my life and i i don't think i've i don't think i'd i see people mention beat it beat cancer i, I don't know if you ever beat it uh the I, i've changed my philosophy around the words that I use addressing it. So I, I liken it to, to a boxing match. And in 2010, I was first diagnosed and I've been now in the ring with it for 13 years. So it's like 13 rounds. The strategy that a boxer uses in one round one, round two, round three, when they're fully fit, everything's there. They've got their cognitive ability they're they're 100 fitness everything is ready they, they can go full gas but the strategy that is used in round one two and three is, is a different strategy when you get to the 10th round you see them starting to hang off each other they're hanging on the ropes they're gassed out so what worked for me to face it in you know I've, so I've had six spinal surgeries now and i've been diagnosed five times what worked in the early diagnosis is was reflective to my values and my philosophy. So my values, my philosophy in the early days was about being a world champion, about trying to win medals at the games and representing my national team. So I was I was fully disciplined to, to the max. My first surgery, when I came out of surgery, I'd had, two, I'd had surgery to remove the tumor in 2010. I then suffered a spinal stroke 
was paralyzed from the neck down, rushed in, almost died, had decompression surgery to stabilize me. I went from a hundred kilo rower to 65 kilos in the space of three weeks. I couldn't walk, but every morning at 0700, I started my mental training and then 0800. So, so I thin sliced purpose. So every hour of every day had a purpose and the overall purpose was aligned with my values, which was aligned with my vision, which was to win gold in London. And every day had like these like micro missions. Okay, what was the mission today? What's the goal today? So it started off with just my finger touching my nose. Okay, so I achieved it, celebrate the small wins. Okay, on to the next mission, recover. Recovery was key. So I broke down everything as a sports person would do. So I always believed that sport gave me the toolkit to deal with tumors and paralysis, but tumors and paralysis ultimately taught me how to live. So I think I'd spent my whole childhood in karate and martial arts. So I got all the character strength that was needed, persistence, discipline, respect, getting knocked out, getting back up, going again. I also grew up playing a sport called Shinty, which is a Highland game, which is a rough sort of mixture of Irish hurling, ice hockey, lacrosse, all thrown into one. Uh, it's a bunch of Highlanders running around chasing a small ball, but it's a, it's a great hand-eye coordination sport, but it's also a team sport. So you understand the we, not the I. So part of going into surgery and facing all this is that you need a good support team. You need the good doctors, the surgeons, the nurses, the friends, the families. If you're a wife or a husband or, or a son or a daughter, you, you, you need all of that network around you. So I learned very on that it's not just about you, it's about, it's about your team. So I, I had all that in place. So I had the toolkit and I had all the discipline that worked through surgery one, two, three, surgery four. Now I'm on to surgery five, six and looking at surgery seven. It's a different animal. So the philosophy's changed. So my my vision now is not to win medals. My vision is is to try and help people understand the beauty of life, to try and help people be more present, to try and help people invest more in their health, to understand that you'll spend a thousand pound on a jacket, but you won't eat good foods. So trying to get people to have a little bit more perspective about how they invest in their health, because ultimately health is your number. Without health, you don't have any wealth, right? It's the number one thing. So the way I approach tumors and surgery now is, is completely different because my values have shifted. It's no longer about being this selfish sort of, it's all about me, I, I, I need to win this medal. So it's all about this external thing. Now I'm like, well, actually there's, there's so much more to life. And, and I realized that sometimes when you set a goal or a vision, you, one of the worst things we can do is we attach ourselves to it. So we have an intention and if we attach ourselves to it and then we lose that attachment, that's when we have a crisis of identity. And this happens so much in sport, you identify purely as an athlete. You do your whole life, everyone asks, what do you do? Who are you? Who are you? I'm an athlete. You always say, I'm an athlete. And actually you're so much more than an athlete. An athlete is just part of what you do. It's not truly who you are, what's the values that make you up. I like to be a humble person, to be authentic, to be friendly. I like to be funny. You know, I, I have all these different values that I live by and that's who, what makes David up. And then David just happens to do sport and that athlete sort of forms a big part of who I am. But when I was paralyzed in 2016, I lost that athlete. It was the death of the ego, death of the athlete. So I woke up from a 10 hour surgery and I never moved again. I lost everything on my left hand side. I'd walked into that surgery fully fit. I was cycling at that point. I'd just done a month in Mallorca. 
I was cycling 20, 25 hours a week and I was very, very strong. And I walked in there with no symptoms, woke up, never moved again, spent six months in a hospital and then transferred into a hotel in Gatwick to go and train in a private uh, spinal cord injury center called Neurokinics. And I was rehabbing five, six hours a day and then spending every night on my own with this body that I didn't want. This wasn't, it wasn't meant to be like this. This wasn't the plan. The, the Olympic values are Sitius Atius Fortius, faster, higher, stronger. So I always identified as this, this athlete, this strong, big, powerful guy who could ski, run, fight, everything. Now, I was a, when I went into the spinal cord hospital, the first day you're in there, they do a test to see what level of injury you have. So I was called a C2 Incomplete Asia D. And it's like being in prison. When you're in prison, people will say, oh, you know, what are you in for? And it's the same when you get into conversation of what do you do? It's the same in the spinal cord hospital. When you met people, they're like, what are you? And people would go, well, I'm a C2 incomplete Asia D. So I had this like ingrained now that my identity was the C2 incomplete Asia D. What does that mean? It means that you have no control of your bowels. Your bladder just goes. You poo yourself in Tesco. You fall over in the street. You're vulnerable. You're no longer dependent. You're, you're, you lose all your dependency, your independency, sorry. So you, you need, you're dependent on other people. I'm dependent on people to tie my shoes, people to dry me. I need to get help to get dressed. I can't really walk that far. So I'd gone from this person who was, thought I was immortal, felt invincible, to then this very vulnerable person. I had, to, and that hurt. So I had to learn to let go of the identity of the athlete and become more. So that's where I said in round surgery one, two, three, the athlete was what I showed up to, 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 to into the ring to face the, the tumor and the surgeries. Now that I'm on 13 years later of this journey, and I'm paralyzed from the neck down, but I can still move. I can't really feel my right side, but I can move it. It's a different philosophy. It's a different mindset that comes to, I can't go like my younger self and attack it and smash it every day and try to get to our world championships. Now I'm like, I have to learn to be happy with less, not more, not, per, not to chase medals, to chase titles or anything like that. To wake up every morning, say I'm grateful for opening my eyes, putting my feet on the floor, I'm going, wow, you know what? I am so grateful that I can stand because every medical person would tell you that that should be impossible, that I shouldn't be standing, that I should need to be catheterizing, I should be in a wheelchair, all of these things. So I wake up every morning with this overwhelming level of gratitude. And when I make my coffee, I make it in a mindful way. I'm present. I can smell the beans. I enjoy waiting for it to brew. And then that first taste of the coffee, when it hits me, I'm like, I'm still alive. I'm still in the game. That's a different mindset to, to earlier on. And I used to think, oh, I've beat it. I've beat it. I've beat the cancer. I've beat the cancer. I realize now that I don't think anyone ever beat it. It's not really a fight. And how do you fight it? You know, because people say to me, oh, keep fighting. But what does that look like? I can't, it's an, it's, a, it's an opponent, it's invisible. You can't see it. Bar looking after your sleep, looking after nutrition, looking after your stress levels, doing all the things, that's all you can really do. And, and I think it's, a, and I've had to learn this along the way because no one teaches you this stuff at school, right? Is that it's almost a disservice to those who die because you're kind of saying, they didn't fight hard enough. 
and 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 I had to change my language because I used to talk about fighting it and battling it and stuff. And then it was only two weeks ago when I was in Jamaica. I sat there and I went. I asked a guy in the gym. I was like, "What is fighting it? Like, how how do how do we actually fight it?" Okay, researchers are fighting for cures and trying to raise money and invest in drugs and, and trying to find a cure because one in two people now are impacted by cancer. So, it, it, you know, it, it, I just came off a call today with Cancer Research UK to start something called Sport Fights Cancer or Sport Beats Cancer or Tackles Cancer. And it's about trying to use the sporting community to, to, to raise money for cancer research, to get more research, to get, you know, better, better, better drugs, better care. And, and that's, I guess that's, the way of the system fighting it but as you as a person i'm like i yeah i, I don't know i don't I mean, how, how does david how does anyone fight this you you kind of got to accept it uh, and accept mortality might be there and it goes back to these eighteen thousand four hundred seconds and and, and living them with intention and you can only really live them with intention if you're clear on your values who you are as a person because if you don't know who you are you'll live somebody else's life. For sure. I guess, I mean, I've used that a few times where I've spoken to people that have cancer or had cancer or potentially might, you know, be, they might be diagnosed with it. And you just naturally, because of the, the, the you've heard it from other people, the culture, which is yeah. fight it, you know, be yeah. strong, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And I guess maybe what they're saying, what we're saying is, um, the mind, like just in your mind or emotions, you know, yeah. they're probably saying invertedly, don't get upset because you've got the cancer because it's going to kind of make it worse, be, yeah. be strong. But yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Like when you break down that word, be strong and fight mm. it, actually, what does that mean? What does it mean? And the thing is, there's only certain things that you can control. And there's obviously a lot of elements that you can't control. And it's very much like life. Um, you know, it's a bit like being on a sales call. You know, there's certain things you can prepare for that sales call and there's certain things you can say in the way you stand and your body language, etc., and your product, your service, your, your brand, very much like a boxer as well. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's certain elements you definitely cannot control. And the only thing you can control at that point is how you respond to it, exactly. you know, your interpretation of it. Um, I was going to ask this straight away, but it's kind of, we're talking about certain elements you can control and things that you can prepare your body for. I noticed that um, when I was reading up on you that you're, um, you're a vegan. Was. 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 Plant-based plant vegan, yeah? And what I was for a time. Okay, so I'm quite interested in this because I've had a lot of athletes and I've had a lot of nutritionists on the mm. podcast. Some are very much against the whole vegan mm. plant-based thing. Some people say it's the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I've had Brian Jennings, yeah. heavyweight boxer, Fort Klitschko, completely yeah. plant-based. He's yeah. on Game Changers, the documentary. Yeah. Harlem Eubank, who's been on my podcast twice, who's Chris Eubank's cousin, mm -hmm. who's undefeated boxer as well, completely plant-based. Yeah. And I've had, you know, bunch bunch other. And they would swear down to... Their, their family's life that being plant-based is the right right way mm -hmm. then i had ruben tabarez on and also a guy called pete who was in david hayes camp who are both yeah. he's strength and conditioner boxing coach and nutritionist they're saying no you need and it's a very very hard thing but 
I went through a bit of a journey where I was, I would never say fully plant-based, but I'm today, I have been for my five years, uh, pescatarian. Mm-hmm. So not, no chicken, no, no land animals, but, but fish. Yep. And, and I would have fish a couple, you know, every other day. And a lot of the time is either vegetarian, sometimes vegan and, and, and that kind of stuff. And I feel like that, that kind of worked for me. Um, with a lot of the conversations that I've had around plant-based, and cancer and tumors there's some evidence outside of the medical world that people are saying that it can really help you fight cancers and over- overcome it i'm using that word again fight cancer but <laughs> you know to, to help to yeah. help combat it's a tool. it yeah it's a, a tool. tool yeah and then other profession professionals are, will ridicule that statement mm. so becoming a plant-based athlete or plant-based individual can it help you combat or fight against tumors and cancer? That's a loaded question, right? Um, I think sometimes when you work in this world, you're dealing with, it's like religion. Someone has their belief and you ain't gonna change your belief. So if your religion is that plant-based is the only way, then it doesn't matter what I say, that's your religion. I I can't change your, your mind on that. I come from a science background. I like to look at the literature. I like to study the literature and see, but sometimes the literature is also not right, right? So there there can be, you know, we've not managed to study and unravel everything. Uh, I'm very interested in the work of David Sinclair at Harvard around anti-aging, and it's not talking about moisturizing creams. It's looking at how the body ages on a cellular level. The tech billionaire guy, Brian Johnson, is taking it to the mega extremes at the moment, but I think there's lessons in there. I think he's made himself the most testable man on on the planet, and he's spending millions of pounds doing all of the stuff to reverse aging. Uh, Peter Atiyah as well, I, I kind of fall into the school, I guess, of Peter Atiyah, Andrew Huberman and uh, David Sinclair's lab and, and how they study and research the body. Andrew Huberman is very good. Very, very good, right? And there's another guy that you might have seen, don't know if he's as kind of maybe sophisticated as those guys, and I might be talking out yeah. of turn and if he's listening, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to insult you, but a guy called David Esprit. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. From yeah. Headstrong. Yeah, from Headstrong, yeah. Yeah, and he's another guy who used to be plant-based yeah. uh, for about six, seven years, and he came off it and he said, yeah. plant-based isn't the way, Yeah. but if you're gonna eat meat, you need to have the yeah. right grass-fed yeah. and, and you need to eat it in, in stages. Yeah. Um, so and, anyway, yeah. And, and, and it wasn't the right thing for him. Yeah. But if you look at Rich Roll, yeah. it's the perfect thing for Rich Roll. It works amazingly for Rich Roll. Uh, guys like Brendan Brazier, it works amazing. I, I went plant-based for a while. and How long? Probably about five, six years. And I had great energy. I was sleeping well. Um, but I did lose muscle mass, but also I was training as a cyclist. So it's a natural progression to cycles and my natural body weight is lean anyway, but I, I felt good. I f- I'm not gonna say it does work and doesn't work. I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a dietitian. And the only advice I would give is that if you are going to go into something, you can be, it's very easy to be an unhealthy vegan, right? You can snack on a bunch of processed vegan food and it's not great it takes hard work because it takes planning structure 
you have to have good food prep you have to be on top of your food prep you have to be on top you have to have your make sure your nutrients are dialed down make sure you know you're you're getting your blood work done i think it's it's so i think now is a great time if you want to do this because we have access to so many things right we can get and i don't mean listening to a podcast or listening watching youtube videos or gurus or influencers giving advice on they take this and this is the best thing from sliced bread or you know the cancer industry is billion dollar industry so it's easy for people to say oh sugar causes cancer don't eat sugar you know cut all this out your cancer is going to be cured it's not as simple as that because every single cancer is is different for every single person so i would always urge you know you need to have a good oncologist a good dietitian you know don't make decisions in your body if they're not based in science and if an influencer is telling you that you know this eat, eat only bananas this is the the greatest thing from sliced bread and you are going to live for a hundred and there's no real scientific evidence in that and also if you started getting blood work then i think there was actually a vegan who recently died because she was literally starving herself uh, so I'm not saying that it doesn't work, but it does work. It works for some people. If you're really disciplined on top of your food prep, I think it can work. Again, if you live in the right place where you can get lots of fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, you know, Rastafarians live off the land in Jamaica. They're super healthy. Uh, I definitely am not. I, I definitely think a high red meat diet is, is carries high risk. And I think there's some really great literature around the correlation between prostate cancer and high red meat diets. But for me, if I was going to make a decision now on what, how I was going to eat, I would see a dietitian. I'd get full blood work done, look at everything from my vitamin levels, vitamin D through all the Bs, my lymphocytes, leukocytes, hormone levels. I would, I would do a full screening of the body every year. And then I'd make an informed decision from that data. There's a guy who was on Steve Bartlett's podcast, a guy called Gary Buckers. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think now he's aligned with Grant Cardone because he's called yep. the 10X Health Conference. Something. Yeah. He was the guy that predicted that Dana White was going to die within 10.4 years. Yeah. And I've listened to that interview. And since then, Dana White and Gary have appeared on Pierce Morgan and they've actually spoke about this journey. And... I speak quite a lot to a few people about how do you determine if you're healthy or not. Mm. And some people will do it visually, like how much body fat you've got, yeah. how far you can run, you know, how much sleep you need, how much energy you have in the day, the, just the way you generally look, mm -hmm. your hair, your nails, whatever. But really and truly what this guy says, and I, I actually believe in a lot, of, a lot of what he said, is it's how your blood reads. Yeah. Your blood is a mere reflection of completely your health. Um, and what he says is if you get a, a full MOT and you get your blood readings, your blood will tell you whether or not something bad is probably in the pipeline. And also if you're deficient in certain vitamins, minerals, etc. Yeah. And therefore, if you know what you're deficient of, you can kind of mitigate any kind of problems by enhancing that 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 element yeah. and i think it's such a a basic thing if you think about it but something that most people when you walk out down the street today would never ever ever go and get their blood test for the sheer sake of it the only time they'll get a blood test if if they're in they've got problems yeah. 
and uh yeah if they i don't know yeah because I, I, I generally think it's an interesting thing because i think a lot of people think they're immortal definitely and, and also there's a there's a great book ernest becker the denial of death I, I wouldn't read it if you're if you're if you're absolutely terrified of of that word but um i've read it several times and it's super interesting because you know if, if i was to tell you you could have a scan today and you find out you've got a brain tumor would you want to know or would you rather live for another 10 years and not know and it's quite an interesting thing because I had a tumor growing in my body for a very long time before I knew. And there's part of me is like, thank God I didn't know. Did, I just cracked on with life. There and might I'm, be, it might be, it would probably come down to this one thing, which is if I was told that I've got a tumor in my brain, do I have the privilege of finding out whether I can overcome it or not? Exactly. And, 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 and if the answer is, it's a 50-50 thing, it's a kind of a mad paradox to be in because it's because if, if they said right you've got a tumor you're never going to come out of it yeah and you, you've got a choice to know now or not know and you're going to die in 10 years anyway uh, it's a hard one it's well, a hard well one. i would probably want to know now because i've got kids and yeah. obviously we're trying to engineer all my life 100 percent towards them which then takes me to that do, yeah, the, do the health checks yeah do the health checks because your why is that you want to live for your kids so that's a strong enough why to then invest in your health so what does investing in my health look like okay i need to dial down on my sleep i need to make sure my nutrition is correct maybe that is plant-based for you maybe it is pescatarian maybe it's eating fish chicken but and low red meat whatever it works for you and then, okay, what does the optimal exercise routine look like for me? What's going to build muscle that's not going to cause too much oxidative stress? And that should be enough to invest. Okay, then that becomes a luxury on your income. If you're just fighting to meet Maslow's needs, then that's probably not going to be your priority because just, you have to pay a mortgage, put it over your head, feed your kids, clothe your kids. So this stuff is, is a luxury for people who can afford it. Now, if you can afford it, why wouldn't you invest in it? Why wouldn't you go and get the bloods? Why wouldn't you go and just make sure that everything is running just tip top? Uh, and preventive, preventative medicine is better than being reactive, right? So if you catch certain cancers early stages, you can, be, you can fix them and, and, and get on with the rest of your life. But if, if you leave it and it becomes a bigger issue, and I think this is also a big issue that we face in the UK right now, that, that, you know, people are waiting like six months for doctor's appointments. And by that time, cancer's gone from stage one to stage four, and then it, then it becomes palliative. So it's, I, I believe that if you're clear on your why, and your why is clear then, you, you said it, you want to live to see your children, then of course you're going to structure your life around being as healthy. Health should be your number one value. But I think most people are so, and I don't want to generalize and be hard on people, but self-awareness is, is maybe a little bit low, metacognition, the, the process of thinking about thinking and knowing your thoughts is low. So you're not going to sit down and think, well, there's a chance I might not. Actually, there was some really interesting data came out about how many people actually make it past 70. I think they did it at Harvard and they said that certain percentage of the class that you're in now won't see their 70th birthday. And we all kind of assume we'll grow old because we grew up and we had granny and grandpa and everyone was there and okay, maybe there was a grandparent that wasn't there, but we kind of have this assumption that we'll just grow old, get married, have children, have grandchildren, but that's not a given. Tomorrow is not a given. 
And there's so many things out there. You can, can be you can be accidental death. You can be caught in a car accident or 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 something that's just pure accident. And then there's all of the big sort of nine heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all the, the usual suspects, stroke, all, all of these other things that are vying to to take our life from us. So I'm like, well, why wouldn't you invest in your health? It's literally the most important thing you have. But yet I see people make all the wrong food choices. They're eating, you know, rubbish. They're ordering takeaways, and, and also this, this is an, also an economic thing because certain people it's cheaper almost to go to McDonald's and eat badly than it is to eat healthy. But if you have the means, then I'm like, well, why wouldn't you invest in your health? And it's you don't have to join a fancy gym. You can just go out and walk in the park. And I think this is, you know, people are thinking, well, you know, I see gyms now and they're all fancy. All the machines are all high tech. You get your own little card and everything's digital. Man, just go and move the body. It doesn't have to be fancy. And I think this is, again, it tunes into how do we motivate people? How do we keep people, you know, where, where you know, the dopamine's now the new cocaine and everyone's attention, instant gratification, their attention spans are so short that they can't even go and do a workout now without being connected to their phone. So gyms have to find innovative ways to engage people to come in the gym. To me, that's madness. I like a spitting sawdust floor. Go and give me a boxing gym with some bags and rusty weights any day over one of these posh health clubs. <laughs> Guys, I wanted to hop on here to once again thank the sponsors of this week's podcast, iSecure Vehicles. When we were searching around for sponsors for the channel, we honestly wanted to get a brand, a company that would give massive amount of value to our audience. And that is definitely iSecure Vehicles. They have a wide range of products which are designed to keep your vehicle, your asset safe and secure. Some of those products are dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and car tracking systems. Head over to iSecure to look at their products and make sure you say that the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you there. So take it away back then. So 2010 is when you found out that you had this, this tumor and it was in your spinal cord and it was actually the surgery that left you temporarily paralyzed, mm -hmm. correct? And then you went on this journey, which you're still on right now, where you were kind of sort of winning against it, then getting back into sport and competing again. And then suddenly you get further calls, you have to go back into surgery, and then there'll be that recovery period. And it was, I mean, you can tell me a bit more, but there was, there was times where, you know, you was in surgery, and then six weeks later, you were competing in, in, in the cycling tournament and stuff. Like, how do you go from cutting away tumors and then six weeks later, cutting away your competition in the cycling race? I, I, again, it was, it was back to those early rounds and it was what sport had taught me. Again, I identified as being an athlete. It's what I loved. I was very fortunate. I knew my passion was sport. I loved to move my body. I loved everything about it. And that's what I wanted to live my life doing. Unfortunately, I have had this this other this other hurdle, challenge, whatever we want to call it, that's been sort of taken that away from me. So I had I had to accept that that I was not not going to be at the top level. That all my friends were chasing medals and winning. For me, it was just about making the start line. So I had my own 
definition of success. So society will tell you that success is lots of money, high-powered job. You know, they'll they'll say that you know the the most successful Olympic athlete of all time is Michael Phelps because he's won more medals. But I, I don't buy into that model of success. I think that model of success hooks you into the hamster wheel. It leaves people depressed. It leaves people, you know, the latter end of their life looking back, going, "Well, you know, I'm not really happy, but I have." hundreds of millions of pounds in the bank, big houses, but I'm, I'm empty. And I feel that actually success is truly living by your values, knowing your why. And my marker of success was, can David make the start line? Because I knew from hospital bed to start line was is intense. And it's, it's, it's an horrendous journey of ups, downs, crying, uh, like dark and depressed states of depression all sorts of of horrible experiences and really i guess experiencing the full human condition and i guess that's why i really appreciate the art on the wall because I, i've been to those dark places and where these guys might have looked to dmt and heroin and cocaine and ecstasy and all these different drugs lsds my drug was sport, just moving my body. I, need, I wanted to get into flow states. I wanted to experience the rush of, of, of all the chemicals that are involved in a flow state. So jumping off of cliffs on skis, you know, anything that was like fast and adrenaline. And that's what I, I chased that and I still chase it to this day. To go from the hospital bed to the start line, again, it's, it's celebrating the small wins. It's learning to walk again. And for me, I thrived in those conditions because when you're at the top end of sport, I, you know, I was I was with Mark Foster last night, who's a five-time Olympic swimmer, and for out of those five Olympics, you know, he's he's trying to get like milliseconds, and you might not always see that improvement, and you might fall back a bit, and then you're trying to search for milliseconds, you don't always see the improvement. When you're paralyzed in a hospital bed at 60 kilos, the gains come huge. So the first time you sit up, that's massive. The first time you stand, that's massive. Then when you take the first step, it's huge. So you, you make these huge, massive jumps all the time. So you're constantly getting the, this, this reward cycle. It's coming constantly, reward cycle. It's coming, it's coming all the time. So you're seeing progress. And when you see progress, it plays into the dopamine circuits of motivation. So I'm like, okay, I need uh, this is driving my inner motivation, my internal motivation. And then as I got, even trying to walk, What's very interesting, trying to learn to walk, you get into the ultimate flow state because focus precedes flow. And when you're paralyzed and you're trying to walk for those first steps, you have, you're so, you're nowhere else. You are literally where your feet are because if you're not, you're gonna end up on your face. So you're really focused. So you would do the work, you'd be in this like micro intense flow state, then you'd have to go and rest and sleep to recover because like, like, cocaine and all of the drugs that the artist would have taken there's the come down and then you need you need more so as you're going through the rehab you're getting more it starts off by walking then you try to run then you get back on a bike and you constantly see this progress is it hard it's excruciatingly hard it was almost harder to do the rehab than it was to actually do the race because the race was almost like the, the easier part of it all but i never could get Every time I made it back to the start line, I just couldn't quite get to the next level to be challenging for medals. And and that's because as soon as I was getting to the start line, the tumor was already starting to grow back and it was crushing all my nerves in my spinal cord from the neck down. 
So temperature regulation, heart capacity, lung capacity, nothing was working in my body. It's almost like my brain was speaking English, but my body was speaking Chinese and they weren't communicating in, in the same essence. So I never, I think for me, I, I never really got to discover my true athletic potential because I always was in competition with with tumor. And I often think, oh, what could, it, what could I have done as an athlete if I hadn't had a tumor crushing every nerve and every nerve in my whole body. And so my body's never, from as far back as 17, my body's never worked. So I've been working with this thing that just doesn't work fully. And I think that's also given me a great appreciation for it and to be kind to it. And where I, in the early days where I did the rehab and then I'd go on training camps and I would cycle for hours a day. My neck was excruciating because they'd cut my neck, they'd put, taken out parts of the vertebrae, cut into the spinal cord. And then, you know, months later, I'm on a bike trying to hold a cycling position for 20 hours over the course of a week. I was in agony. And I look back now and say, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> rehab now is very different to what it was, but I wouldn't change it. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, you know what, I couldn't do that. I think you'd surprise yourself. Obviously, there's the t from Carl to expert, we know there's growth mindset, fixed mindset. I've spent 14 years in ICU wards, in neurological wards. I've spent six months in spinal cord hospital. Sometimes the people you think would do it fall apart. They can't handle it because they've maybe always been in control of their life and they've always been in the front seat driving and they can never sit in the passenger seat. Sometimes they're the people who fall apart. And sometimes it's the person that you wouldn't have imagined they become the strong person. And you see it, you know, we always talk about athletes and all these people in the limelight and everything, but you only have to go to Great Ormond Street and look at some of the kids fight. There's your true warriors. They're like, you know, like fight we're using that word fighting but you know the will to survive yeah the human will to survive we can never underestimate that's what we're here to we're we're trying or if we don't go too deep into the meaning of life but we're literally trying to survive to procreate to keep the hum, human species going and actually what Kierkegaard and Aristotle will say everything else is just noise to distract us from our own death <laughs> They're not to sound too, too morbid, um, but a lot of the social psychologists and scientists will just say that's what it is. Everything's a game and a noise, so it takes our distraction away and our attention away from our inevitable passing. And actually some uh, social psychologists will tell you that we're no more relevant than the fly that's landed on the, the dog shit and then landed on our dinner. Uh, you know, it's as relevant as us because it's also here to procreate and keep the planet going and I think that is so important to know and I think the reason it's important to know is then when you do have success you also have humility and I think that that's the number one value that's how I measure people I don't care if you've won 20 world titles if you're not humble then you're, you're not a good human being you're not I don't want to spend my time with you I think that you can win and be humble and again if you lose you can be gracious. And I think that's where combat sports are really good because if you walk into a boxing gym with a bit of a swagger and a bit of an ego, there'll be someone in there that can knock you out pretty swiftly. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you came in today, 
Um, obviously, first time meeting you. Very tall guy, slender, can tell you're an athlete. Um, but just so the audience know, so you've got a crutch and then your left side mm -hmm. is you're totally paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. And then the right side, you can move, but you're saying that you've got limited feeling. Yeah, I can't feel it. Yeah. And then you've got the one crutch, but you can also stand without it. Yeah. So, so like, are you in pain right now? Like, what, what, like, what, how are you feeling with dealing with this, this living tumor in yeah. you? So I think the one thing that's my saving grace is that, that I've been fit and healthy. Some people will say, well, wow, look, you got that and you were fit and healthy. And I think it's, it's the cards you're given, right? You can be sat at a poker table, you can be given good cards and play completely shit, or you can get a really shit hand and, and play great. I think I got the genetic lottery was not probably kind to me. This, this tumor is linked to, to genetics, but I've played a great hand. And I think when I, when I speak about that sport gave me the toolkit to deal with this, it made me, I understand sleep hygiene. I understand nutrition. I understand mindfulness and meditation. I understand psychology, philosophy. So I've got a little bit of understanding of all of these areas. I don't have huge knowledge in them. I'm not, I wouldn't claim to be a guru or know anything about anything. I think the fact that I know that I don't know is, is, is enough. And, I, and I'm a, I love, um, I love learning. I love, we've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> I love to listen. I listen every morning to, to audiobooks, to podcasts, to, to soak in information so I can better equip myself to live my values, my number one value, health. So I'm in discomfort and fatigue. I can stand and I can move because I, I know how to rehab myself. I know how to train myself, but I also know when I need physio when I need psychology, when I need, you know, if, if maybe I need to go and get a trainer. So occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll bring in a trainer and say, look, can I, can I have, can I, can you train me for three months? So I learn more from what they're, the school, the, the book that they've read, because that's not the same book that I've read. And so I, I try to, because I'm not training for a specific goal, I'm only training to try and stay alive. And I want to get my body in the best condition if someone does find a cure for spinal cord injury, that I'll be a good candidate for whether that's a drug or some form of AI technology and my body would respond really quickly because I would give anything to move. I would literally give everything I've got, all my, everything to, to wake up tomorrow morning with my health and movement, uh, 100%. So I'm very, very, very lucky that I, I just know how to, to, to exercise. I felt for the people in the spinal cord hospital who had never been into a gym. Because it's, it, going into a gym is intimidating. And if you've never been in a gym, and then all of a sudden you're told, look, you've got this window of time where you need to rehab yourself. You need to do all this work. We can't hold your hand the whole time. You need to do the work yourself. It's unlikely that you're gonna go and join the gym when you're paralyzed because you weren't a member of a gym before. So I think, as much as it hurts for a sports person to become paralyzed, the one blessing is they have a toolkit. Now, whether they use the toolkit is another question. You know, it, it, they might not have the mental capacity to use it because of the loss of identity and the death of identity and the death of the ego. But I've somehow been fortunate enough, if I was to go through surgery tomorrow and wake up 
at 60 kilos in a hospital bed. Okay, it sucks to get back. It's going to be horrendous. But I know within three months, I can rehab myself back to the person that walked in here today. And then people will be like, oh, why, how do you have the motivation to do that for the seventh time? Because I know how precious life is. And I know that the biggest quality of life for me is training my body to a level where I can walk with my stick and I don't need to be in a wheelchair. I can maybe tie a shoelace with one with one hand or I can go to the gym and swim. Actually, I taught myself to ski again this year. Now, if, if I had listened to all of the negative noise and some of the negative information in the medical world that told me I'd never walk, I'd never do any of these things again, I'd just spend the rest of my life sat in a chair, you know, all of this just noise, if I'd listened to all of that, then I wouldn't have gotten skis this year and skied. And I go and show the doctors and they're like, how are you, how are you skiing? You're paralyzed from the neck down on, on, you know, on one side. And I think I, I, I feel truly blessed that, that I can still do these things. But I also am very, very aware that this can be taken from me at any moment. The medical experts or people that know you and know what you've gone through, and you mentioned about seventh time you know trying to get through this this tumor um has anyone today right now given you a predictive a predicted timeline no they won't they won't do that with with my tumor because it's not metastasized Uh, if it was to metastasize around the body then i don't think that would be a great stage so no and i'm not I, i hate this predicted timeline thing right because this goes back to maybe the flaw in the literature because they'll take a body of evidence and they'll say, okay, you've got 12 months. And inevitably, someone passes on the 12 months because the power of the epigenetics on the gene expression, we talked about law of attraction earlier on. This is, this is the power of the vibration of the psychology, something that, you know, the, the humans, we're so complex. We are, if you start to strip the human body back, Man, it is a complex thing. The, and you know, the mind and the brain, if you think of them as software and hardware and your parents were the computer programmers. So up to the age of seven, your parents are writing your computer program. Then you go to school, they have, your mates have a bit of programming, your teachers program you. And you remember if you're the really curious kid at school and you're always putting your hand up to ask a question, you are then, you're the problem child. You're curious, you want to learn, but you get told to shut up and don't speak. Don't speak to strangers, don't do this, don't talk it. So you're told all this stuff. So you have all these unlimited, these limiting beliefs that then you run the rest of your life on this subconscious program. We owe it to ourselves through neuroplasticity that we know exists now to do the work later in life, to, you know, to, to condition your mind, to build self-awareness. So when a doctor sits there and tells you this, you're like, this is crazy. And you always hear, right, you're all the outliers someone got told they're gonna live, die in six months time, 20 years later, they're still there. I like the idea of someone saying to you, look, you have a tumor, it's very aggressive. I ain't gonna put a timeline on it because we're all different and our mindsets are different, our physiologies are different, our biology, how our cells break down. Okay, the, the, the core of it, it all, we all do, it all does the same thing, but within our internal bodies, we're, we're different beings. Uh, even though we're 99% DNA is the same, I would rather they just said, go live your life. We'll monitor you, we'll worry about it, but you go and live your life. You go and do what you have to do. We're here to support you. But sometimes now when you go into the doctors, they're also human beings, remember. They have relationships, they have emotions, feelings, beliefs. 
Now, they don't get that education at medical school. They're not taught about metacognition, about self-awareness, about altering states, emotional regulation. They specialize in their subject, they come out and they go and do it. And they might have a bad day. They might not be able to emotionally connect to somebody. Also, they're delivering bad news or good news to people day in, day out. So when I go into hospital sometimes, I see burnt out doctors, they're tired, they're fatigued. They're not looking after themselves. Um, so I'm like, wow, you guys need to be looking after yourself as well. And that's a whole different conversation, right? So no one's ever given me a timeline. Uh, one oncologist said to me, look, if we give you radiotherapy, we can kind of, it probably maybe only work for about six months. And I'm like, but how do you know that? Because there's no studies in literature on my tumor to say that is the time frame. But now you've said that, I've now got this seed planted in my head that now plays over and over again. And then I water it and it grows and it goes from a seed. It's now a full blown tree. Um, and I can't, you know, if you say something to somebody, I can forget what I've said to you, but you will never forget. And especially you won't forget how it made you feel. So that's why it's so important when you speak, you, you speak intentionally. And Viktor Frankl wrote an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's like a Bible of mine that, that, that I always use. And he talks about the stimulus and space response. And you have a stimulus and we're reactive human beings. You only have to step out into London to see how reactive people are. Everyone's angry, sticking the finger up at people, shouting at people. But there's a space between stimulus and response. And if you can hold that space, you can then say something of worth, something that's not going to upset somebody, something that's going to help somebody grow. And I think that's really crucial. And I think when we throw these time frames around, the people who throw them around should maybe sit in space just that little bit longer and think, how would it feel if it was me on the other side of the table and I was giving this news to me? And then, uh, yeah, that wouldn't feel so good. So actually I'm going to reframe my wording and because I've also got to know that this person's got programming for their whole life and they might be very, you know, erotic, neurotic. You don't know what, we don't, we don't, they're not screening your personality types. They don't know that by them delivering that news to you, you might go out and it might motivate you to live the best life or it might completely crush you. And for the remainder of your life, you're in a, in a state of anxiety. So I think the delivery has to be better. It has to be of a, come from a place of more emotional intelligence and delivered in a way that we empower people. We don't almost make the condition worse. And I think that that's super important. So I'm, I'm kind of lucky that there has been some numbers thrown around in regards to my spinal injury and the tumor I have, but I'm like, you know what? Yeah, like, I'm that, that, that like I'm my own person. So and it's not saying that when my time's up, I'm going to be able to fight it because it's inevitable, but I'm very aware of the anxiety that that can cause. And then that can be all consuming and, you know, like bless people, people will message me and say, what's the plan? What's the plan? And I'm like, look, I appreciate the support 100%. But imagine if you get a hundred messages a day asking you what the plan is. All you talk about then is the plan. <laughs> and then, so it becomes very overwhelming. And then, then your, your identity then becomes this. And I don't want my identity to be this. I use this as a catalyst to help people live more in the present moment and to live more with values 
and to understand the beauty of life. And that's usually the, the biggest extent of that I talk about it. And and I, I've, I forgive my friends, um, but and I know they only care and it comes from a place of love. But I think, imagine if you were the person, you were getting 100 messages a day, what's mm. the plan, what's the plan? <laughs> you'd be burnt out mm. by the end of the day. So that's what I speak about the level of metacognition. When you speak, speak with intention. Don't just say something for the sake of saying it. And I think that sometimes people want to fill the gap of silence. And I, I was guilty for that for years. And I would just rabbit a load of shit that was irrelevant and didn't really need to say. And a lot of the work I've done now is just to try and sit and just sit and be comfortable in the silence as I think about an appropriate thing to say rather than just speaking for the, for the sake of it. Um, funny, you mentioned about man's search uh, for meaning. I, I wrote that down actually here and I was going to ask you about it and it's something I'm definitely, definitely going to pick, pick it up. The other quote that you mentioned in previous interviews that you've done is this. You come into life with an inhale and you leave life with an exhale. And that really just kind of sums up, you know, the start to, to the end of life mm. and I've said this scenario a few times there was one form of dragon from Dragon's Den and the interview wasn't done being done while she was in the Dragon's Den but it was like behind the scenes type mm. one and she was at a villa in Spain Marbella very wealthy multi-millionaire and she was gazing out into the abyss into the view and the 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 guy who was interviewing her said um like uh, something along the lines of taking risks and well, aren't you afraid about losing everything and what happens if business goes wrong, etc. And she made it very, very clear. You come into life with nothing and you go out with life with nothing. So everything in between is borrowed. Yeah. And the watch, the clothes, the building that you're in, the oxygen you're breathing it's all borrowed yes. everything is borrowed yeah yeah everyone talks about owning this owning that and i'm very much a victim of that i you know i very much say i want to build property portfolio and i think there's some good in that because you develop as a person as you're building these businesses empires and mm -hmm. and, and assets but equally at the same time it's almost like what's it all for it's, it's such a crazy thing and you know, we've got a sales team here and I feel like I still don't, even though I've been in sales for quite a long time and every business has sales and it's an art sales, there's obviously the skills and the experience and all that other, other stuff. And the way I've almost been kind of learning about sales is being, like obviously you need to know your, your stuff, your, your products and everything else, but it's about being a ball of, positive energy but not being overwhelming but mm. someone that is has good intentions there to help people and if you're that ball of like you just exude this positive fucking energy and you've got this great brand and product behind you shit just happens mm. like conversations would just happen sales will just happen mm -hmm. people come into your life and it would just happen but if you look on the negative side of stuff, you're a big drinker, you take drugs, you're around the wrong people, you kind of got a negative way of looking about yourself, you've got a negative language pattern, mm -hmm. you'll attract more and more of that into your life and problems will come. I was gonna ask you earlier as well, I know you don't have the answer to it, but again, it's almost attached to my mission when I was reading about 
being a vegan or plant-based stuff and you do have some people who really kind of emphasize that cancer isn't this is not me (laughs) cancer isn't bad luck it's because of your lifestyle and then other people are saying no it's genetic Mm -hmm. and sometimes i'm on one side because when you're reading such a compelling column or someone Mm. saying all of this kind of logical statements and their 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 perceived facts and stuff and then you you speak to someone else who's lived and breathed it kind of like yourself and and there has to be some sort of genetics for some people and I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if this is a question, but like, right, I think what if, is you it? know, if so, I first of all, I'm not an oncologist, uh, so this is just anecdotal uh, experience, experimental evidence, I guess. If you live long enough, you will get cancer. You might not die of it, but if you live long enough, you will you will get it. And if you normally, if like my granddad passed, he passed of old age, but he had cancer. Cancer Same made him. So if you live long enough research tells us you will get cancer now i think if you look at the literature and not uh because remember anyone can write anything online so i think when we read it online we've got to read the news and what we see with a level of metacognition again look through the eyes of a scientist it depends if you speak to someone who's uh, a graduate of dietetics or oncology or whatever they'll always say it depends that's how they finish because everyone's different from my readings and my experiences is that I think you have two types. I think you do have genetic uh, tumors and cancers. People are predisposed to genetic conditions and that has been found in the Human Genome Project when they unraveled the, the, the genetic code. But I also think there is lifestyle cancers and you can prolificate that. But then I know someone who's lived to almost 100 and he smoked the cigarettes every day and he didn't have lung cancer. So it's such a complex question and it would take hours to unravel it. But I think if we were to just surface answer it, there is genetic people who are predisposed to genetics. So I know that my gene is a stat six NA2 fusion gene linked to chromosome 12 and 13. So there's nothing that I could have done in my lifestyle that would have changed the growth of that tumor. Now there is great evidence to show that there is lifestyle impacts that increase your likelihood of getting cancer. Now, again, that goes back to your genetics. If you were given phenomenal genetics and you're predisposed to lots of toxins and stuff, you might get lucky because there's always outliers. There's always outliers. And it's the outliers that normally make the news, right? So a man lives to 120, smokes, drinks, eats rubbish all the day, but there's been 20 million other people die living his lifestyle but he's the one that makes the news so then everyone holds on to that and goes oh look it doesn't matter i can smoke and drink and do whatever there's great evidence to show if you're drinking and smoking you're increasing your risk of cancer type 2 diabetes you know alzheimer's dementia strokes there's all of these and it's linked to stress linked to lack of sleep you if you look at matthew walker's work on sleep he'll tell you if you're getting four hours sleep a night that you're turning on 711 cancer promoting genes you're increasing your risks of alzheimer's dementia so there's great evidence so i always encourage people if they're reading 
you know, if, if they've read an article in Men's Health, I'm not going to say that article is not correct, but find the literature behind the article. Find out who the research did, who funded the research. Was it peer-reviewed? Uh, that's why I'll, if I'm looking at research, I normally go to the, the sort of three or four big places. I go to look at Stanford, look at Harvard Medical School. What are they, what are they studying? What are they putting out? Because usually they put out good, good content. And I think if you dive in deep enough, you'll find that, that there is people who are predisposed genetically, but there's also lifestyle cancers. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I guess I'm referring to, and hopefully my dad will listen to this <laughs> one time, me and him have a bit of a, a battle all the time about, you know, like people say, oh, when it's your time, it's your time. Mm. And it's almost like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Like if I suddenly decided to run outside and jump in front of a, a lorry, mm. was, was that my time? <laughs> or was that just me deciding in, in that moment, I want to go and kill myself? Yeah. Um, someone dies of, dies of cancer but then when you look at their whole entire lifestyle every single day they smoked 40 cigarettes they drunk every single day they done drugs and their and their their nutrition was McDonald's and Burger King well was that their time or was that more about yeah. their, their their lifestyle yeah. and there's always a debate between me and, me and my dad about it and my dad's very much about he's like well you know when it's your time is your time and I said well dad you can you can kind of influence that a bit by training more eating yeah. more healthy An epigenetic up. approach to, to life yeah and, and, life, and that's where it's investing in your life right putting in the right stuff yeah yeah very 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 much so i was going to ask you a question like if you could turn back the hands of time would you would you would you prevent having cancers and tumors and probably the honest answer is gonna be yes because of all the pain the surgeries yeah, and stuff 100%. that you went through but at the same time, I get this sensation from previous conversations and how we're talking right now that because of the tumour, you're actually living a better quality life because you're giving your 24 hours 100% of your time. Is that true? So this is, again, this is a philosophical question that, that I've explored over time. And I think when I was first diagnosed, I was in denial. And I would say, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And you hear this, like I've had friends who have, who have lost limbs and stuff and all sorts of, and they'll be, this is the best thing that's ever happened because it's taught them how to live. So there's the paradox. When you come closer, you're, you're never more alive than when you're really close to mortality. And you could almost argue that Alex Hannon, who does free solo and did that crazy uh, climb up El Cap, he probably felt more alive on that climb than he does sitting having a cup of coffee because he's right on the edge of his own death. So when you're right on that cusp, you feel really alive. So Steve it, Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs as well, right? Done when, that, yeah, uh, Stanford talk. Yeah. And he said he was looking down the barrel of the cancer gun and he said you've got only a certain amount of time and then they found the cure. Yeah. And, then, and, and if I could bottle, when they tell me that I have a clear scan, Steve, if I could bottle that, Th that moment for and it lasts only a day and then I return back to base level and then I'm like well you know I need to ride my bike I want more I'm chasing more I need to be happy I need to ride my bike or I need to go to the gym I need to go and do this but in the moment where I'm saying hey your scan is clear I'm like oh my god like I and it, so I understand it's this like it's hard so it's taught me how to live in the early days, I was like, this is the greatest gift. Wow, what a gift to be taught, to be aware of my own mortality, to make me live more. Now, 
but that's also haunting me because fast forward to round 14, round 13, round 14, different fighter, different boxer, tired. Oh man, I wish I'd just won the, won the fight at round three. Now at the later stage, now I'm like, you know what, man, I would give anything to go back to my twenties and be clueless. I had great fun. I would go out clubbing, I would go skiing, I would just, and I had, I just thought I was immortal, I wasn't thinking of death, I wasn't worrying about anything. To be honest with you, I wasn't really thinking at all. I was just a mindless youngster having fun. And uh, and I think that's the, the two sides of the coin, right? One side is hedonistic and one side is eudonomic. If you live purely a hedonistic lifestyle, you'll probably end at the final destination pretty empty. But if you live a life purely just of meaning, you ain't going to get invited to any dinner parties, right? Because all you're going to start talking about is death and the meaning of life. And people are like, oh my God, this is too intense. We want someone who's fun. So uh, there's days where I'm like, you know what? Man, I wish this wasn't me. I wish I didn't have this level of insight into mortality and scares the hell out of me. I'm terrified of it. And then I wish I'd never read Ernest Becker's book. I wish I didn't know about Kierkegaard. I wish I didn't know about Sheldon Solomon. I wish I didn't know all these things. And then I'm like, well, actually, okay, by learning all this stuff and going through it as well, it's gave me a huge appreciation of life. But would I have found that anyway? Because I'm 45 now. So would the David Smith have just naturally discovered that at 45? Because people do, they don't have to go through all of this to discover that. It's part of, of growing into your crystallization of your knowledge and becoming more wise as you age. I would have rather rolled the dice and taken that path and taken the risk of not knowing what I know. And because it's, it's, it's generally terrifying. And even though it's made me have a greater appreciation of life, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to wake up every morning and go, oh God, I'm paralyzed, lift my leg, lift my arm, constant visits to the bathroom. I would rather just get up and go about my day in an unconscious fashion, go skiing, go whatever, surfing, windsurfing, go jump off some things. And then one day just pop my clogs <laughs> and, and not ever have asked the meaning and question of life. I think if we look at some of the great minds of, of, of the world, they're troubled people. They're, re you know, the people who have thrown themselves into the meaning of life question, the artists on the wall, they've wrestled with some stuff. And I know there's a longevity study that came out of Harvard and it followed Harvard students for 85 years. And it said, you know, the ones that had the most flourishing and happy life were the people who wrestled with some stuff. And I get that, I understand it. And I, I think, you know, there's days I swing, days, but I, if I could not have gone through all this, but had the knowledge and wisdom of it, then for sure I would take that. And I think that drives my purpose now because I'm like, I don't want anyone to go through what I've gone through and suffer it to learn the same lessons. I'm like, well, if I can share that with somebody and I realize they're not gonna take everything, but if they just take one thing and that's just be more present and be in the more in the moment. And I'm like, that's cool. That's given me a bit of purpose that all this suffering wasn't for nothing. And I think that's a lot of what Viktor Frankl talks about. And that's probably why Viktor Frankl went on to do the work he did was that all the suffering he had gone through, tell me it's not for nothing. The, um, there's all these cliche kind of sayings that again, they had a lot of meaning, but then due to social media, they can be diluted and thrown around. But 
there's that saying which is life isn't happening against me it's happening for me and I sometimes in the moment it's like that's quite a cool thing to say and it kind of can make you feel good but then sometimes the reality depending on what that thing is it, it, it depending on what that thing is happening at you or to you or for you it's quite hard to, to to kind of wrap your head around that that statement I interviewed a guy called uh, Harlem Eubank mm. professional boxer and the vegan plant based really really cool guy good friend of mine train, uh, I've trained with him I've gone on runs with him and uh, he's been on my podcast twice and I just love the way he treats life it's like I do everything I prepare I prepare in the ring outside the ring I'm this positive person but at the end of the day whatever's planned for me will just happen and I just let go of any kind of result and I'm like you're so taught as a salesperson and actually as a boxer and as an athlete and as a business person to win, 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 win. And I get all of that and I'm not saying I don't like winning and I don't strive to be a winner. But it's almost like if you've done everything you can possibly possibly to win, let go of that end result. Yeah. And in, in some ways, you'll probably get the win because you're less connected to it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly what Arthur Brooks talks about. Uh, for those that are not familiar, Arthur Brooks, he's a Harvard professor and he's actually the professor of happiness at Harvard. But he talks all about, again, set the intention, but detach from it. Don't be attached to it. It can't be your all-encompassing who you are because, let's be honest, most people don't become Usain Bolt. But there's millions of kids around the world want to be Usain Bolt or want to be Messi. They don't always get there. So if you attach to the outcome and you hold on to it so tightly, if it if you don't get it, then your whole identity, everything falls away from it. Mm. That's super hard, right? And it, and again, another. I was speaking to some rowers last night, and they were saying our coach constantly goes on. It's about the process. It's about the process. And this is the danger, I guess. And this is also the danger of the self help world. When you start to use these things all the time, these words all the time, it become they don't become as powerful. And, but it is true, you know, you, you should have the outcome goal, but you really need to live the process. And then people will go, well, how do I do that? Because like I think one of the things is we can say, well, it's all about the process. It's not about the outcome. But then, but how do you actually do that? So you need to do the work. So Michael Gervais, who's a performance psychologist, he worked at the Seattle Seahawks with Pete Carl. He talks about there's three things you can train. You can train your craft, you can train your body, and you can train your mind. Most of us are good at training our craft. I'd like to think most of us jump in the gym and move our body and train our body. But the mind, how are we training our minds? Now, I think everyone would benefit from some form of psychotherapy, psychology. And, and unfortunately, when you say that word, people are like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. And it's not there's anything wrong with you. Go back to what we spoke about earlier on about your parents being in your computer programmers. They're not experienced programmers. They're not writing code. It'd be like giving your eye, it'd be like giving, if Steve Jobs had given Apple to the, to the local plumber and said, look, I want you to write all the code. He's not gonna know what, how to write it, so it's gonna be all mismatched. So you need, they have proper computer programmers. And we're just the same. We've been programmed by all these people and then we never have an update. Not like our phones, our phones are getting updated every year. When was the last day you as a human had an update? Change your beliefs. I mean, to speak to your dad, how hard is it to change his beliefs? He will hold on to those beliefs. It's impossible to change someone's beliefs. It's so hard, right? So we don't get updates. So actually, I've spent 
huge amounts of time with psychotherapists, with psychiatrists, with psychologists, exploring things, getting toolkits, then having, you know, mentors all through my sport. You know, I had coaches learning from the coach, the coach-athlete relationship. In karate, it was the sensei and the senpai. I was all, what my sensei was here. So I've been surrounded by people who have coached me my whole life. So first of all, you have to be able to be coached. So you have to be coachable. Some people are not coachable. They're hardwired in their beliefs. So you need to think about how am I training my mind? Am I updating my programming to deal with the modern world? The world is changing all the time. And that's, you know, you don't want to be the dinosaur and get, get made extinct where you can't operate in a modern world. And our brains are really designed for an old world. They're survival mode. It's to keep us alive, keep us safe. The limbic part of the brain is all around keeping you safe. That doesn't really work in a modern world. And that's why you see everyone being reactive. That's why there's road rage. That's why there's so much anger out there because people are running around on a, on a program it's just not really working properly and they're not plugging in to get updates. So invest in working with your mind. Psychology and psychotherapy is not about what you've seen in the movies going lying on a sofa and telling everything that's wrong. It's not always about what's wrong. It's about how can I make myself better? So the world of positive psychology from Martin Seligman and these guys and a guy called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who sort of coined the word flow and there's like some other guys in, in America who work on the flow GMO stuff. It's about how do we flourish as human beings? So what can we do that's flourishing? How do we have a proper journaling practice, a proper gratitude practice? How do we experience flow? What's our values, our guiding principles? All of this stuff. That's how you get to live the process. And a lot of like boxers and athletes will do that inadvertently. They won't know they're being coached. And that's the best coach, right? When you don't know you're you're just learning all of these things and you don't even know you're learning them. And then he can sit here and be like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really attached to the outcome. I'm all about the process. I love training. I love being where my feet are. I go out every day. I'm, I'm happy. He doesn't know what, he might not know. He might be able to articulate it. Sometimes he won't be able to articulate it. But I feel for the for a vast majority of people, especially if you're feeling unease and you're not fully happy and you're reactive and you're shouting, you know, look at your sleep. Look at what you're putting in your body from the news to, to the food. You know, nutrition is not just food. It's also what we're nourishing our body with what we read and what we see online. Uh, you know, that's also nutrition to the body. And then learning how to be the watcher of your thoughts. And I, so I think, I think everyone should go to therapy. I think we would all benefit from it. Because we, if you think about it, if you go out into society, it's basically a bunch of nine-year-old kids running around in adult bodies because most people are running around as reactive reactive human beings running on an amygdala that, that, that's been primed for survival, but it's been also coded by people who are not professional coders. Hmm. Um, I feel like I'm ridiculing my dad here, but um, <laughs> like, well, you just said something there that upgrading yourself like a phone or software yeah. upgrade, etc. And I remember we, me and my dad a couple of years back I was saying, Dad, like, I feel like you would really like to go to Dubai. Um, listen, it doesn't have the culture like some other places around the world in the history, but if you're looking for sun, if you're looking for lovely hotels, restaurants, because he likes all that stuff, yeah. and I, I, I know him very well, you're going to love it. No, too expensive. No, I don't really like the Arab culture. No, and, all, and he just kept to come out with a Never, mm. ever been. 
Never yeah, been. Never been, yeah. Anyway, a friend of his who's very wealthy ended up paying for my dad to go out there with him because he's one of my dad's really, really good mates. My dad came back and I kid you not, if I said to him today, where would you like to go for two weeks, all, like, all pay for if you had the opportunity to, to, to go right now, he would definitely say 100% Dubai. Dubai. <laughs> and what's the difference? Because you've experienced it, you've upgraded, you, you've had that experience and it is so important the podcast, the reading books. I interviewed a guy last night over Zoom called Jeremy Miner. Mm-hmm. And he was a, from the age of a very young man in his late teens, early 20s, became a commission-only salesperson. And at the height, he's an American guy, mm-hmm. was earning close to $3 million a year, just straight commission, working for corporations, etc. Now he's got his own company, training people, etc. Mm-hmm. And one of his famous sayings is, is training or education what you did or is it what you do? Mm. And that's the thing. Like people think, oh, well, I went to school and I don't need to do that no more. Mm. No, education is about continuously learning, getting around the right circles, getting around the right people and consuming the right things. And you're right, nutrition and what you absorb, you become exactly what you absorb. Whether that's food, water, beer, drink, cigarettes, whatever, and and the conversations. I wanna ask you a few more things. So. What is next for you? Obviously, the broader answer is probably living in the moment and stuff, but the two kind of things that have stood out in the broadsheets about you, one, the competition, the sport and stuff, but two, the day-to-day living with the tumour and, mm. and the next stages of that. Like, what, what is next on these two, these two elements? So, in a week's time, I sit down with my neurosurgeon and we talk about the plan. So the plan, everyone messaging me, what's the plan? So in a few weeks, yeah, in a week's time, I go and I sit with a neurosurgeon and, and we discuss what the latest scans have showed. And from there, we, we'll have a plan and that plan might involve a surgery, which will be the seventh surgery that carries huge risks of paralysis, of you know death, of all sorts of craziness. Uh, then it follows another rehabilitation program and the nature of my tumor is that then it would just start to grow again. Uh, there's a, an incredible hospital called Heidelberg in Germany, which is a cancer specialist place. I wish I'd known about this again. I wish I'd known 10 years ago about Heidelberg. They have new treatment uh, delivery systems. They have cutting edge stuff that the UK doesn't have. So my plan is to go to Heidelberg to buy time. How long can I live? And they deal with all tumors, all, all cancers. All tumors, all cancers. They, they have something called carbon ion therapy, which was founded by an American scientist, developed in Japan. There's seven centers in Japan, I think one in Korea and two in Europe, and they're in Germany and Vienna. Now this machine, I think, is anywhere from 100 million to 280 million pound, and it's the size of a football pitch. But when it, it can deliver a beam or a particle if balloon nine has cancer and the, the other balloons don't, radiotherapy would normally destroy all the balloons until it hits the cancer balloon. Carbon ion therapy and the high, heavy ions can pass through all of the balloons without damaging them purely to the cancer tumor and, and start to, 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 I guess, cause damage to the DNA, double strand break and stop the growth of the tumor. So it's very precise and that where my tumor sits, that would be a great thing. Now, unfortunately, I'm now, I didn't get this stuff 
10 years ago. So now I'm the, the, they would be dealing with someone who's had seven surgeries, radiotherapy, there's a lot of scar tissue there, the cord's gone through a lot, and there's a high risk of uh, damage in the cord. So if, if I'd had this treatment, I mean, hindsight's a great thing, right? If I'd had this treatment 10 years ago, I'd be sitting in a different position. I might only be on surgery number two. Now I'm going on looking at surgery number seven, so it's a different ball game altogether. So my, I guess in many ways, what, what does my life look like now? It's hard to set a goal, if I'm being honest. This is not advice for anyone else. This is more, it's hard for me to set a long-term goal because I don't know what long-term looks like. So I'm like, okay, so I kind of thin slice purpose. Okay, what's my purpose for today? What's my purpose for tomorrow? What's my purpose for a month's time from now? What can I achieve in, in the next few months? So I'm very clear in my values. My top value is obviously health, as we've discussed. I need to be in nature. I love to be with friends. I love movement and sport, and I love to make a difference. So I see them as the four or five legs of a chair. If you start taking one leg away, the chair can still balance. If we take all five away, then the chair falls. So there, that's what's holding me up. So every day I try to, and you can either move towards them or move away from them. So every day I try to get to nature. Every day I try to move my body. Every day I try to be in, because we're social beings, we like to belong, right? We want to be, we're tribal. So I like to be with friends or be with people. I'm a natural extrovert. So I love being with people. And then I'm also, am I making a difference to the world? Am I, am I doing something good to society? So, you know, I write, I, I would love to write a book and publish a book to help raise money for cancer charities and also to, to, to help people, you know, share the story and help, and help people. Because I think that, you know, as you age and you go through life, it's like mentoring younger people and you can exchange information. And this is the great thing with podcasts and the internet now, you know, as a youngster, you can get access to so many phenomenal minds and people and topics and discussions that, you know, stuff here. I always make a point in listening to a podcast that I know nothing about the subject. So it's something new. And I learn about something new and that can be history, geopolitics, space, AI, UFOs, whatever it may be, just something new that I've never heard before just so I can learn something new. So my plan going forward again is, is, is you know, I, am I living those values? And if I'm living all of those values, whatever happens, happens. I don't want to, to leave this life. I'm, I love it, I love it here and I, I think I've got so much more to live for and do. But if I live all those values, then I can accept what's coming. Where I struggle is if I ain't living those values, because if you're not living your values, you're living someone else's. And it's, so it's been very clear in those first principles and your needs, what you, what you really, you know, what really gets you going and burns that fire in your stomach. And if you don't know what that is, then you're going to be on someone else's. And then eventually when you meet your maker, you'll be like, ah, oh, man, you know what? I didn't live the life I wanted to live. And it, we're, we're all going to die, but we don't all live. Mark Marcus Aurelius, yeah, it's stoicism, right? So I think to live, you need to be clear. And you might need to make some hard choices. And okay, early on in your career, it's hard because early on in your career, you might have to work. If your value is family, you might have to work 80 hours a week to build your nest, to create a life for your family. So you might have to compromise a little bit on that value at the start, but you need to know that value. And if you don't really know it, then you won't know when too much is too much. I see people in the city, 
they, you know, they've made enough money. So if they value family, why don't they leave the city and move somewhere where they can then invest and really live that value? But no, they continue to want more. I need more. I need more of this so I can buy more things. I want my name on a building. I want immortality. I want to be remembered. What's my legacy? All of these things that, but then you're actually spending no time with your family. But I thought you valued family. So I, that's where it's super clear to know what you what your values are. What what is your guiding principles through life? And for me, that's just a constant work. So I'll all, every day I'll try and work on myself so I can be a better human being. I can live with more compassion, more curiosity, more courage, and genuinely just try and grow as a human. Because like you said before, you you're always growing, right? You can always learn something new. Like your dad now thinks Dubai is amazing. Where Last year, he was like, we'd never have gone there. Mm. So I think it's important to, like, every day is a learning experience. Um, exposing yourself to more and more different experiences and more and more information and try and expose yourself to as many of the right people and networks as possible. Mm -hmm. And I just feel when you've got that mix and you've got a positive mind on you and you're healthy, not just about training and, and, and eating the right stuff, but a healthy mind, mm. a mind of possibility, a, a, a mind of belief, determination, you know, a, a mind that anything is possible, then anything is possible. Things, things will materialize yeah. off the back end of it. My closing question, and this is gonna take us, I mean, during this conversation, it's, I feel like you slightly covered it, but I wanna ask you the direct question. So when I, started my first ever brand when I was 24 years of age, I came up with a mantra. And the mantra goes like this, be happy, never contempt. Now I've got my own interpretation, David, of what be happy, never contempt means to me. If I were to ask David Smith, the Nike athlete, the MBE champion, what does be happy, never contempt mean to you? It's an interesting one, right? So, because you could say that true happiness comes in being content with what you've got. And then it kind of airs on the, the work from Arthur Brooks around, again around wanting more. And again, I'm gonna go back to your values because there is no right and wrong with that answer. It's what you value. So if you value more and you value you measure success in your medals and how much money you have and how many businesses you build and that's what drives you, then that's great. That's that's gonna where you're gonna flourish, you're gonna find happiness, you're gonna find you're gonna find contentment. Now on the other hand, if you're maybe a Buddhist or you're someone who's of a different thinking, contentment is having less and maybe not striving for that so if you'd asked the david smith in 2010 what that was he would have said world title gold medal in london but asking the david that sits now i'm going to tell you that for me it, it's it's more time on this planet but, but that's my interpretation of it because that's where i that's where my sh feet are in my shoes at the moment so I think it means something different to everybody. I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. I think that, you know, you, there's different times of your life. I think it's, you know, there's the, I, I, I can't remember all of Arthur Brooks' works and studies and I don't want to say it in case I get it wrong and, and, 
and butcherize it, but if you're not familiar, you know, go, go Google him and, and listen to his lecture around fluid intelligence and stuff, and he explains it incredibly well. But you don't, you wouldn't want to get to the latter part of your life. He tells a story about being on a plane and the person behind them was very famous, hundreds of millions in the bank account, like everything that we would want to be, he had everything. But the conversation was about how unhappy he was, how depressed he was, how he felt that his life wasn't fulfilled. So he got to age of maybe 60 and started going down on happiness. And then I can go to a fisherman in Jamaica who's in his 80s and has nothing. He's lived a purposeful life about putting food on his family's table and he is up here in happiness. But the world would tell that and he's just content. He's content with his lot. This is what he has, and he is happy. Um, and I think if you know your values and know who you are as a person, then you'll decipher what contentment is for you. And in relation to that, and I think the people who chase happiness, you don't chase happiness. You, you ensue happiness. You create habits and actions. And then happiness is a byproduct. If you chase it, it's like chasing, if you chase money, if you chase happiness, if you chase success, you're never really going to get there because the way it wires your dopamine pathways, you'll always want more. But if you have good habits, you're clear in your values, you work hard, you show up, you show up with intention, then you'll create the, a vibrational frequency around you where you will you will get you'll achieve things that you might thought were impossible and i i like you know don't be content and go again and go again but what if your value is family and by going again you're spending less time with your family more time on your device because you're in meetings 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 got to go more 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 can't be content got to keep going and then your kids grow up and leave and you're like well how did that happen and then your wife's like yeah i don't really love you anymore and you get divorced <laughs> because all you do is you work all the time and great, you've given me this big house, you've given me this great lifestyle, but I don't have you. And I have a friend who one day, his kid went and picked up his Blackberry and flung it in the pool. <laughs> He's a banker. She's like, I want you to be with me. I want you to come and, you know, I want you to, I want, dad, I want you to come and kick the ball with me. Sorry, sorry, I'm trying to build this empire that's going to get you to a great school. But no, I don't want more money. I want you. So again, knowing your values and knowing when enough is enough. That, okay, this is, I don't need more. And maybe there's the content, maybe that's contentment, right? I don't know. Uh, what, I'm interested to think, what, what, when you did that brand, what was your, as you're thinking the same now to those two words as it was then? I, I agree with your statement, which is there's no right or wrong answer. And in life, there's no right or wrong way how to live your life. Yeah. It's totally down to the individual. Yeah. I said the same thing to a guy called Tr uh, Trish Dixon, who is a boxing, I want to say, boxing professional critic. He's wrote a book called Damaged about mm. the boxers, mm. the head, head, head injuries. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he commentates on boxing and he knows a lot of boxers. And when I said that to him, he went on the sort of attack about, you know, can't being happy all the time, etc. But even that word happiness, that's subjective as well, right? Mm. Because what I mean by happiness is 
we got the stereotypical, which is happy, which is upbeat, you know, you're elated, you know, you've got endorphins and you've got this real kind of feel-good factor about you and you're buzzing and that's kind of what a lot of people associate happy, happiness with and it is that. Yeah. But I also realised that true living isn't always being happy, it's not always being f- fearful, it's not always being angry, it's not always about being depressed, you're just going to go through life, going through, and they all serve you. But what happiness means for me is there's the real upbeat happiness, but there's also the silver lining, even when things seem to stacked against you, mm. whether that's in business, health or com- competition, whatever. So for me, be happy means find the happiness in any scenario that you're in. Never content kind of means it probably meant at the start, keep on pushing financially and building. Yeah. And it kind of still does mean that right now because I yep. feel like I'm on, on that mission. But it also does mean that keep on learning, don't be content with everything that you know yeah. and keep on pushing the boundaries as far as relationships, education, knowledge, exposing yourself to great scenarios or great experiences and never be content, like, you know, try and give as much as you can to your family as in you or experiences mm. and, and, and open doors for them. I basically. love that. It's a growth mindset. It's a growth it's mindset. A growth mindset. So, you always want to grow. You always want to... It's knowing that you don't know and you're always wanting to learn new things. You discovery. want to grow, discovery. It's, it's ultimately, it's, I think Susan David, who wrote a great book, Emotional Agility, I'd say it's staying curious. Yeah, yeah. You're always curious. You're always coming out the door every day with curiosity. How do I learn more? How do I grow more? How do I, how do I develop this? And so you're always being curious. And then that's driving your internal autotelic motivation, which means that you'll always show up. Yeah, it's like, being kid like still you know yeah. always being a kid like and going kid. out and just yeah. wondering what's, what's and out that, and that's the thing I know we've touched on some heavy stuff today but have fun laugh enjoy that's that's you know when you can I think emotions are like the Scottish weather right they come and go I mean when you can be happy depressed or whatever all this but ultimately like I love it yeah See, be kid like you know you see kids and they're like coming up and speaking to each other they're playing they're running around chasing and there's somewhere we just lose that right and we become these serious adults and and then you don't ever see it maybe you go to a rave and you see everyone with their shirts off dancing and letting loose but everyone else is very like stringent and we've got to follow the rules and i think yeah man you know like laugh more humor is such a un, it's such a great thing right just to laugh enjoy yourself let cut loose you know, if you're the guy who gets up on the table and dances at the office party, go for it, man. You know, like, just enjoy. Life is there to be enjoyed and, and, and embrace that. And I think, you know, sometimes we're guilty of being too serious sometimes. So true. And obviously, you know, being a father myself, you see it with my two-year-old, my four-year-old. You know, there's no fear when they come to asking for something and just wondering and... You know, they're, they're always pushing the boundaries and, you know, like, obviously you've got to control them sometimes because they could do something silly, but it's almost like there's no limits. It's just mm-hmm. go out there and just live your life to the, to the full, full potential and I think you can learn a lot from, from children. Speaking of that, I've learned a lot from you today. I really, really appreciate your time, mate. And I'm very, very humbled that you share your story and, yeah, maybe in the future we could do a part two, David. So I'd love to. Very, very, very much enjoyed this conversation. Everybody, please subscribe, follow this man's journey. Be happy, never content, and thank you once again. Thank you. Cheers, mate.